Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. A couple of days ago in the question and answer period, uh, somebody asked um, about looking at uh, wholesome states, looking at uh, pleasant states, as we seem to talk a lot about noticing unpleasant states or working with unwholesome states. And it's a good question, and uh, although we have been talking about wholesome states, certainly Carol's talk on generosity and uh, all the talks in some way are about cultivating wholesome states, but I wanted to specifically explore this with you tonight to see what we're doing here as a, a path of happiness. Sometimes the practice seems so profound and focusing on working with the fact that there is suffering in life, it's the first noble truth, the cause of suffering, there's an end to suffering, and there's a, a way to the end of suffering. It's a whole lot of talk about suffering, and happiness doesn't get perhaps as much airplay, um, but um, the Buddha was called the happy one, and uh, suffering is not a factor of enlightenment. Uh, so um, I just thought we would we could put some focus tonight, emphasize it, so you see it in the context of what we're doing here is both um, working with suffering, coming to the end of suffering, but also um, cultivating happiness along the way and aiming for the highest happiness. Mm. The Dalai Lama starts out his book, The Art of Happiness, The Purpose of Life is to be Happy. It's a great way to start a book, isn't it? But I know for myself that uh, sometimes there can be um, a kind of heaviness or seriousness in the practice. And um, it's not... It's not just uh, something that... There are reasons why this can be a misinterpretation of, of the teachings. Uh, I want to mention particularly two very profound concepts that can somehow be um, distorted or misunderstood. One is called Samvega. Has Samvega been mentioned here by any of the... Um, Samvega is the oppressive sense of shock, dismay, and alienation that comes with realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived. (laughs) A chastening sense of one's own complacency and foolishness in having let oneself live so blindly, and an anxious sense of urgency in trying to find a way out of the meaningless cycle. (laughs) 
that's a very profound understanding, but it can seem like we're, they're saying, get me out of here. <laughs> and the operative phrase is the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived. And we're learning a whole other way of understanding how life can be lived that gives it both meaning and depth and um, inspiration, some vega. Another very profound concept is that of nibida, N-I-B-B-I-D-A, which often is translated as mm, disgust for the aggregates, disgust for this mind and body. One should have disgust or utter revulsion is another phrase that's sometimes used for the aggregates, for either this mind and body or those around. And again, that can, it's not a very uplifting, joyful attitude, but that's one translation of this word nibida, which actually uh, much more profoundly and accurately is um, really meaning disenchantment. Disenchantment means that you are not enchanted by this mind, this body and mind or others around you, that you have broken the spell. You're seeing through the spell of wanting so that the grasping isn't there. But again, this can be a misunderstanding and, and can let, give the feeling that, um, you know, this is, this is not a very joyful thing to be doing. And I know for myself, I went through a period where I got very serious in my practice and somehow mixed up in my life the end of suffering with the end of living. And that was not so good. But through it all, I needed to find out just what the Buddha did say about happiness. Actually, I'll, I'll mention to you just one of the, one of the uh, key moments that woke me up when... Um, I went to visit this teacher that uh, most of us has studied with, uh, this Advaita teacher, Punjaji or Papaji. In fact, I went there, Sylvia and I were there together. Really incredibly loving, bright, radiant being. And he would talk about emptiness all the time. Every, he loved emptiness and he loved Buddha and, 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 and the teachings. Uh, but it had a very different tone when he was talking about emptiness. And finally, after the end of, almost at the end of my stay, I, I'd had so many questions and uh, I felt a little bit embarrassed about asking all these questions. And he'd say, do you have any more questions? I said, well, give me all your questions. I want all your questions. And I finally got in touch with the big question towards the end. And I said, um, Punjaji, when you talk about emptiness. Now, when, when Buddhist Dharma teachers, including myself, talk of emptiness, it's, it's such a serious concept and it's so profound. And um, sometimes it gets a bit solemn and maybe even grim. Uh, 
not so much grim in the in the in the concept, but just the weight of the word. Just yeah, it seems so solemn. That's what I said. I said when you talk about emptiness, you're laughing and you're shining and you're light and you can feel the love. You know, why is your emptiness so much more fun than <laughs> than ours? You know, what's going on here? And he he said that uh, it was a very profound moment for me. He said, you know, if you equate emptiness with what you discover on the cushion, with the stillness, the quiet, often it can seem that 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 is how you touch the experience of emptiness. And anything other than that stillness and quiet seems kind of like a um, antithetical and so we keep on going back to the stillness and the quiet as being where we really touch what emptiness is about. He said, my emptiness, let's see if I can do a little Im- imitation here. My emptiness rejects nothing. Nothing is rejected from my emptiness. There's, there's love and confusion and sorrow and joy and crying and laughing, nothing is rejected from my emptiness. And he starts laughing, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> And it was, it was true that I had somehow gotten caught in thinking that all of this, as it said, probably you've heard many times, samsara and nirvana are one, that not to reject anything, it's all part of life. The key is how can you discover that emptiness the depth of that understanding in the midst of the aliveness of life. Joy is one of the factors of enlightenment, rapture or joy, keen interest. And the Buddha talked a lot about different kinds of happiness, pamoja, gladness, piti, rapture, Mudita, sympathetic joy. Lots of different qualities, sukha, other kinds of happiness. And sometimes we can get lost in thinking, oh, yeah, I want some happiness and it's not happening. But you have to understand that there's different flavors of happiness, peace, contentment, ease of well-being. And so after I kind of woke up from my uh, serious, heavy uh, period, I started to look at the teachings and see where I had misinterpreted things and what the Buddha really did say about cultivating well-being. And that's the word I usually use. He said, it's first important to understand where true happiness lies. Because if you think, as we are conditioned all the time, that happiness is about acquiring more is better and sooner is is best, then um, you're going to be barking up the wrong tree. But if instead you see there are wholesome states of well-being that are highly recommended to cultivate, then you start to focus in the right direction. And in the wise, the four wise efforts, 
perhaps you're familiar with this, there are four wise efforts. Two of them have to do with unwholesome states, with guarding against unwholesome states that haven't arisen. You don't want to put yourself in temptation's way. You know, if you're on a diet, you don't want to be working in a bakery, right? No, not so helpful. So you just want to be guarding the sense doors. Here we guard the sense doors so that we're not swept away by things that might pull us out with wanting. There's overcoming unwholesome states when they've arisen, and we work a lot with that when there's sadness or fear or or worry or the antidotes to the hindrances. We work with them so they don't confuse us. And then there are the cultivation of wholesome states. Developing wholesome states that have not yet arisen, like we do in the metta practice. There we are just programming ourselves. May I be happy, may I be safe from harm, to cultivate that quality, or the compassion practice, or any of the Brahma Viharas. So there's cultivating them, and then the fourth wise effort is maintaining and increasing wholesome states when they've arisen. This is right in the Buddha's teachings. When you have a wholesome state, this is a skillful thing to do, to maintain it and increase it. Not by attachment. That's the tricky part. If you say, oh, I want this to last. How do I get it to last? You're going to find yourself in a jam, because that's not how you maintain and increase the wholesome state. But he said this is a very good thing to do to have those wholesome states of well-being as much as possible. Fill the mind, open the heart, and out of that openness of mind and heart, we can see more clearly. Because when the mind is very contracted and confused, we can't see clearly. So, maintaining and increasing wholesome states. And then he says, accompanying wholesome states, there's a feeling of gladness. And in this one discourse that I stumbled upon a number of years ago, uh, the words kind of jumped out from the page where he says, actually he uses the example that Carol used the other day about generosity. He says, while you're in the middle of a generous act, he says, think to yourself, oh, I'm being generous now. He says, this is a good thing to do. Not that you're saying, hey, check it out. Everybody see how generous I am? Or, hey, I'm a pretty generous kind of person. (laughs) That just reifies a sense of self. But if instead you let yourself feel how good it feels for the impulse of generosity to move through you, this is a very good thing. And the words in the discourse, he says, that gladness connected with the wholesome, one gains inspiration in the meaning, inspiration in the Dharma. One gladdens the heart, opens the heart with that gladness. And he says, that gladness connected with the wholesome, I call an equipment of mind to overcome ill will and hostility.
So while you're in the middle of a, of a wholesome state, a state that's not accompanied by greed, hatred, and delusion, to let yourself feel the gladness is a very important thing, overcoming ill will and hostility. And then another teaching that I found particularly useful to put together with these first two, I think I might have mentioned it the, the, in one of the other talks, I'm not sure, where he says, whatever the practitioner frequently thinks and ponders upon becomes the inclination of their mind. I mentioned that one, didn't I? So if you keep on frequently thinking and pondering upon or maintaining and increasing wholesome states, that becomes your more and more your natural default setting. So I wanted to share with you some of these wholesome states for you to explore in your own practice and see how they work. This, by the way, is a uh, I'll see if I can do this, a condensed version of my 10-month Awakening Joy course. So uh, we'll see it, if it, uh, how much I get in. So the key to inclining the mind towards what is wholesome is getting in touch with your intention. And it was talked about, intention is happening in every moment. Every moment that you're coming from greed, hatred, and delusion, you're cultivating suffering. Every moment that your intention is non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, generosity or ability to let go, kindness and clarity, you are planting seeds for well-being. But then on a bigger picture, there is the heartfelt envisioning of what's really important to you. Like Guy asked on the first night, remember that? That was so long ago, wasn't it? Remember he asked, "Why get in touch with your intention Why you're here. And I, I hope you've visited that from time to time because that's the place where you get your juice from your heartfelt wish, what really matters to you. Everything rests on the tip of one's motivation, a Tibetan teaching says. And if you are inclining your mind towards inspiration, towards what will really open you to freedom, then that can be very profound as you go through the practice. And I'd like to just do a little exercise with, if I can remember it, to, with each of these. Uh, I'll, I'll share with you a story, some of you might have heard this, where I, it helped me get in touch with my intention, and maybe it can with you. Uh, I was, on my way, I was going to this conference in India. I was really excited. I was invited to this conference, um, Western Teachers with, with the Dalai Lama. And it was very, you know, wow, this is really... How wonderful. And um, on my way, the itinerary took me through Frankfurt, Germany. And I uh, was telling a friend who said, uh, oh, Frankfurt, Germany, that's where Mother Mira is. And I said, oh, yeah, that's right. And I knew this friend had gone to Mother Mira. 
And she said, oh, you really, you should go. And I said, okay, well, maybe I'll go. She said, no, 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 you should go. <laughs> and then I found out that Mother Mira could grant the boon of whatever you wished for being granted. I said, okay, I'll go to Mother Mira. <laughs> right? And I arranged it for a couple of nights uh, to stay there and go into the, the darshan there. And uh, there I was that, that first night. And you go up one by one in front of, uh, in front of this holy woman whose you know, aura is like really powerful. Um, and uh, you, you're all sitting in a room. She comes in quietly. No Dharma talk. She doesn't say anything. When you're on that level, you don't have to say anything, right? And then one by one, you, uh, you go up in front of her. There's like an on-deck circle. And then when you're ready, you, you go up and you, you first put your head down and she does some kind of massage of some uh, un unraveling karmic knots, I was told. I don't know how it works. And then, then she, then she uh, lets go and you look in each other's eyes, right? It's like you're looking into the ocean of eternity, right? And then she closes her eyes. Okay, that's, that's the end. So it's about 45 seconds, the whole deal. I, I timed a number of them. It was like each time was just right on. Okay. So there I was waiting and thinking, let's see, if she really can give me everything, I, anything that I want, what do I really want? Yeah. And so I wasn't ready to jump up and be the first, right? I wanted to think this out. And I kept on thinking and thinking and reflecting. Well, do I want another really neat experience? No, you know, experiences come and go. Do I want something, some really cool object? No, they, they come and go. And I just kept on thinking, what do I really want? I kept on going in, going in, going in. And at some point, it became clear what really mattered to me. And I went up, and I don't know what powers she has, but in that high pressure focus situation, as I was tuning into my heart's desire, it was like it was seared into my, my heart. And that's 15 years ago. Every time before I give a talk or about to work with somebody for a little while, I'll just get in touch with the intention that really mattered to me. And there it is. So now I ask you, if you were in my position and you knew that you could get your deepest wish, if you were in front of somebody like that, a holy woman or some, some great sage or a magic genie or however you conceive of it, what would it be? I'd like you to just take a moment right now, go inside, close your eyes, 
and put yourself in that position in front of this being who could grant you your heart's desire. And if you don't say, then you just take your chances. But if you get clear, it would be granted. What speaks to you? feel something? Was it alive? Going down where nobody can be with you other than you and your sincerity of motivation. And now, as, you've, as you got in touch with it, maybe if it's still here, just feel the wholesomeness of that. Just take, a, again, a moment and whatever it was that you got in touch with, feel the authenticity, the honesty, the heart connection. Notice how good that feels. This is a wholesome moment, not to miss it. Okay, like you can open your eyes. So, intention can be with you throughout your retreat and throughout your Dharma life. And it can change from time to time. It's not that uh, it doesn't change. It's they keep on evolving and growing, perhaps. But it's the heartfelt connection that brings us well-being and happiness. And that leads us to the next wholesome state and one of the great tools of well-being, which is mindfulness. In the moment of mindfulness, as the Buddha says, you know, the most wonderful way, the most direct way to overcome sorrow, lamentation, grief, despair, and anxiety and pain and realize the highest happiness that is the establishment of mindfulness. It is the most amazing of all mental factors because it also has the attribute, as has been mentioned, of cultivating all the other awakening factors and wholesome states. In the moment that you're mindful, you're not grasping at the pleasant, you're not pushing away the unpleasant, and you're not identifying with your experience. This is a moment of freedom. Now, you can use mindfulness to your advantage, if one could call it advantage, to your um, benefit by being very present for other wholesome states. 
somebody was in one of the in an interview uh, today or the other day saying, I, you know, I, I really, um, I see all of this stuff in my mind, you know, it's just really humbling. And uh, is there any way out? And I, we talked about the value of really being with whatever is here up to a point. But sometimes you can be so familiar and have your focus on those unwholesome states. Oh yeah, there's more greed, there's more jealousy, there's more insecurity, there's fear. Yep, I know that one. There's loneliness, you know. That you forget there's other things. And so I suggested that she take a look and see if there's anything else in there besides those unpleasant states. And there, on a moment, I said, are you feeling miserable right now? You know, she said, no. I said, okay, well, just notice not being miserable for a moment. Okay. Hmm. What's going on? Well, it's kind of calm. Oh, pay attention to calm. Oh, kind of nice. Relaxed. Hmm, there's energy here. <clears throat> and I suggested to her as I suggest to all of you, if you've gotten very good at noticing and having your radar out for all the yuck in your mind, congratulations, <laughs> well done, but there's a point at which it's counterproductive. As the Buddha said, I might have mentioned this before, forgetfulness and inattention is one of his recommended strategies when you are completely overwhelmed and continue to get lost in certain distracting thoughts, to turn your attention someplace else. You don't have to go there all the time. And in fact, start noticing other wholesome thoughts. Start noticing moments when you're feeling kind of okay. And the interesting thing is, the more you are on the lookout for them, the more you'll find. Because you will get, you'll find what you look for. And so a key to this practice, besides being willing to open up to the whole show, is not missing the good, not missing what's good. As, as it was pointed out, um, you know, the newspapers are filled with sensational, horrific stories because that's what sells newspapers. There's too much good news to put in the newspapers. It wouldn't fit all the beautiful things going on. And it wouldn't be news. Oh, this person was so nice to their neighbor. You know, all right, big deal. There must be something more sensational than that. That's happening all the time but we miss it because it's right under our noses. It doesn't grab our attention. As my friend uh, uh, Rick Hansen, who does uh, the neuroscience day longs here says, the mind is like Velcro for bad stuff and Teflon for good stuff. 
because it's kind of wired up. We look out where we're, uh, you know, in the brain, there's the amygdala, which kind of looks out. It's a survival mechanism for what could go wrong. And we have to train ourselves to see what's good, what's right. That's what the metta practice is, you know, seeing what's good, seeing our noble qualities in ourselves and in others. And what happens is the more you open up to all the goodness around you, it's like a wider container that allows you to hold all the hard stuff. We're not talking about denial here. We're talking about expanding your container. You know the phrase, the 10,000 joys, the 10,000 sorrows. Well, if you're just focused on the 10,000 sorrows, that's just part of the picture. The more you can also include the 10,000 joys, then everything can be held in uh, a larger context. So, here's a moment of mindfulness. Just try this. Close your eyes. And one thing that's a reality right now is you're alive. Let yourself go inside, feel yourself sitting here, and know that you're alive. You're breathing. Everything is operating on its own. And you're simply here for this moment of life, just as it is. Nothing you need to add or take away. Just let yourself tune into that fact. and feel the wholesomeness of it. Okay, you can open your eyes if you'd like. With that looking deeply into things, you are heightening the experience of interest and investigation. And it's all quite fascinating. That's why interest, investigation leads to rapture, a keen interest, because the more you take a look, you see, wow, life is happening here. And there can be this sense of appreciation, this sense of wonder, this sense of gratitude. You probably know the experience. Everybody here, I'm sure, does, because you've all done retreats before. As a retreat, continues and flowers and particularly towards the end of the retreat, just the feeling of gratitude is such a, a natural welling up. Gratitude for being alive, gratitude for the Dharma, gratitude for the good fortune that we all are so blessed to have and receive. Gratitude is a very wholesome state. The Buddha talked a lot about faith, having faith, letting our hearts be touched. And in, in certain Buddhist practices, gratitude, supplication, you know, all the bowing that goes on. I take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, and there you are bowing to it all out of a sense of humility and, and gratitude. You know, Jack said when he was a monk that he got... There's so much bowing, he said, if it moved, I bowed. Right? <laughs> yeah. 
So that can be an, a conscious development. And when you're feeling that gratitude for life, for the moment, don't worry about getting attached. Oh, no, 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 I, I shouldn't go there. Let yourself feel it, that welling up and using the mindfulness to tune into that state. That's what increases, maintains and increases the wholesome state, not by grasping at it, but by being very present for it. So just a quick gratitude practice. Take a moment, you can go inside and think of someone who you're grateful to in your life or maybe something that you're grateful for. And as you're reflecting on that, maybe have an image that evokes that, that person or that circumstance. And then give thanks in your, in your heart and in your mind to that person or to life. Thank you. Just let yourself feel it. And as you're feeling it, let your attention focus on how good it feels, how good the grateful heart feels not with attachment, not with manipulation, but just open to it, be present, explore the landscape of the grateful heart. This is a very wholesome state. Let it touch you without grasping, appreciate while it's here. It's that openness of well-being. Okay, okay, you can open your eyes if you'd like. So as you're going through the the day and those moments of gratitude come, tune into them. Oh, wow, how good this feels. Why not? It's just as good an object as suffering and confusion. You know? Oh, I can be here for this one too. Given that, the spaciousness that comes from each of these, then there's another aspect of wholesome states, and that is being willing to be here for the hard stuff. I talked about this a lot the first talk when I talked about the grace in suffering. Being willing to be here for the suffering and finding a courage that you might not even have known was in there, this is tremendously uplifting and empowering. Usually, after you've gone through it. But don't miss it then. And maybe even while you're going through it, feeling the sincerity that you bring to it. You know, I mentioned that, that list the last time about 
suffering being the causative factor for faith, faith being the causative factor for gladness and joy and happiness and all the others. It's really interesting when you think about, when I think about the, the happiest people I know, two people come to mind. Okay, think for a moment. Probably most people have one of them that I'm thinking of, and that's the Dalai Lama. That guy is, is pretty happy. Have you seen? <laughs> and the other that comes to my mind is uh, this, uh, Bishop Desmond Tutu. Also, he's got some kind of secret. Now, those two people probably have seen more suffering than all, all of us combined in this room. The Dalai Lama, every day, you know, when he's in Dharamsala, receives people who are telling just such hard stories. And, of course, Bishop Tutu the same. And yet, they're two of the happiest people in the world. Why is that? They're not afraid to open up to the suffering. They've integrated it, and they see, yes, this is part of life, but it's not the whole story. And so the Dalai Lama, I've seen him, he could be crying in one moment, hearing a touching story, and then like, you know, five minutes later, he's laughing. It just all moves through him. How we process our difficulties really is the, the key to opening up to well-being. If we get frightened, that we'll be overwhelmed. And certainly, whenever you're feeling overwhelmed, you need to back off and get some space. But to see, oh, I've made it through. There's another way to hold this. This is profound. In uh, the book that I, well, it's not here, that I use for the, uh, my, uh, my course is this book, How We Choose to Be Happy. And it's the, the nine choices of extremely happy people. Uh, where they've interviewed like 300 people over a few years, certifiably happy, right? And they've <laughs> distilled nine common choices. And one of them is recasting, where you see all the, all the dukkha and somehow you hold it in a different way. And my favorite line in the book is this guy, um, Maurice Washington, an 87-year-old uh, uh, saxophone player, from jazz player from New Orleans, who had a debilitating stroke, and his comment was, um, after that stroke, when I could no longer play that saxophone, I learned to sing. It wasn't like, oh, that's the end of my life. Oh, now I can sing. Right. Do you get weighed down saying, oh, well, this happened to me so that I can't ever be happy again. And in fact, one of the great gifts, which I want to share a story, of suffering is that we learn things that we didn't know were possible and we can be there for others. I was just saying in the staff room, one of my favorite books, this book by R.D. Lang, uh, The Politics of Experience, where he says... Um, the ones who've made the journey to the hell realms and have come back are the greatest of healers. They're the ones. So when you're going through a hard time to really see, oh, yeah, I'm learning something from this, how um, 
this will be a, a help and a gift in my life. And what I, uh, one anecdote I want to share about this, this is really inspiring for me, um, is about a woman who I just saw last week, maybe, uh, I don't know if you heard it, the, the evening that there were lots of bells, tea time. Anybody hear that? Um, well, that was my friend, Nancy, and it's okay to share her, her name, she said, it's fine who comes every February 12th, um, we do a little ceremony together. Uh, because 11 years ago, uh, Nancy's 14-year-old daughter uh, took her life. One of the worst tragedies a, a parent could imagine. And she was the light of her life. And I've known Nancy ever since. She came on this retreat trying to sort out and make sense of what had happened. Because for a while it was like, well, why go on living? And for the next four or five years, there was this incredible grieving process where she just was willing to feel everything she was feeling. And we ring the bell 108 times. And over the course of time, she realized the only thing that would give meaning to her daughter's passing was to go on with her life, and somehow uh, her daughter wouldn't want her to freeze frame in that sorrow. And so she continued to work, lots of work, and transformed her suffering into this amazing gift. She's a radiant being. She's really one of the most inspiring people I know. And uh, she works, has worked for quite some time counseling uh, parents of uh, teenagers who've taken their life. She's now in the chaplaincy program, Gill's chaplaincy program. And um, she sent me a card after, it was about five or six years during this transformation. And she, this is what she wrote on it. It was an incredible card. This five Chinese peasants uh, looking at this little, little boy. And each of them had this, they, they don't have much teeth. So it's, it's not quite a toothy grin, but it's just kind of a huge grin on the, uh, all five of them. And inside this card, I have received a gift that is beyond words. I've witnessed my deepest despair the darkest, most wounded quarters of my heart, and learned not to flinch or back away. I rested in love and even tasted joy, all the while still knowing the sorrow of my loss. A few days ago, I held a bereaved mother in my arms as she sobbed. She had lost her son to suicide. I held her to my heart as she held on for dear life, and as I rocked her, it was as if I was rocking Julia, rocking myself, rocking the broken hearts of all beings. And in that rocking, in that holding, we were all held in one heart. I've been so blessed. Just seeing her this, this last week, she said she just continues. She said she never could have imagined the the joy and the peace and the well-being. She still 
gets sad, and there she was as we were ringing the bell and tears coming out of her. But um, her life isn't stuck there. It's been given meaning. She said, this is Julia's gift to me. So I ask you for just a few moments to go inside and see the hard stuff that you've touched these last few days. If you have, if you've been fortunate to, to not have hard stuff, well, great. And think back somewhere in your life and just get a sense of the courage that you've accessed and the deepening of compassion that might have come through that. The inner strength and the willingness to be here for it all. Let yourself feel the wholesomeness of that. The sincerity of your intention. Your love of the Dharma, even stronger than your fears or doubts. And if you are in touch with that, turn your awareness to feel the wholesomeness of that. Let yourself open up to it. Don't miss it. It's really beautiful. It's your gift to the world. Well, I'll just kind of move through very briefly, touch on a few other wholesome states and qualities and perspectives that I invite you not to miss as you're going through practice. Uh, one that Sally spoke of a few nights ago when she was giving the talk on Hiri and Otapam, the bliss of blamelessness, that when you choose when you choose the noble way, when you have a choice to do it quick and easy or a way that doesn't serve you or others, and somehow you choose to act with integrity, the Buddha said, this is a, a wonderful source of happiness. In one discourse, he says, there are four kinds of happiness that anyone can experience or that, that can be understood and appreciated by anyone. This is a, a, a sutta to lay people. He said, there's the happiness of being free of debt, practical, you know, may that happen to us. Happiness of having enough prosperity that you can take care of yourself and your loved ones. 
There's a third kind of happiness where if you're very fortunate, you have the capacity to be generous with people you don't even know. How wonderful to be generous that way. And then the fourth is this bliss of blamelessness where you act, your life is aligned with integrity. And he said, compared to the bliss of blamelessness, the other three are not one-sixteenth as potent a source of happiness. I don't know how he figured it out, (laughs) but that's what it says right in the discourse. And when you think about it, of course, if you're not aligned with your values, how can you appreciate any good fortune you have? Every moment that you act with integrity, don't miss it. Just let yourself feel how good it feels. Think of a moment in the last few days where, or in your life, if nothing comes to you, where you really took the high road. And as you remember it, notice how good it feels. Oh, yeah. Turn your attention to feeling the wholesomeness of that state. You can open your eyes if you'd like. There's integrity. There's another one that has been spoken about a number of times. The joy of letting go, of being content to to be happy with what's here. The joy of relinquishment of the wanting mind, putting down the... The, the baggage of the wanting mind. Oh, how good that feels. Let yourself experience that in those moments. Oh, here's a moment of contentment where I don't need anything more to make it a better moment. There's, of course, the, the well-being that comes from moments of metta, where you genuinely feel a kindliness towards others or towards yourself. That's a very important one, really feeling even a glimpse of goodness and kindness towards yourself. This is very important. And it's sometimes the hardest to access. We can feel kindly towards others, but when it comes to ourselves, it's a different story. Now, I ask you, this is something I like to just reflect on. I don't think I said this. If you met somebody who got your jokes, did I say this? Who had similar tastes, who really understood where you were coming from, who really got you, how would you feel about meeting someone like that? You'd probably be ecstatic. Like, where have you been all my life, right? There's one person who gets every joke that goes through your mind. (laughs) One person that really understands your taste and take on things. Unfortunately, they're right inside your body, and so it's a little bit a different perspective. But if you met yourself, you'd be tickled pink. My best friend. uh, Einstein has this expression, and we live in an optical delusion of consciousness, 
it's just from our perspective, it's limited and we don't get who we really are. But you'd be delighted if you met yourself. And the more you can get access that joy and well-being, the more you have for others. And you really see how good you are, staying connected to your goodness. There's the joy of caring, of compassion, like we're doing now. That caring heart that gets moved by the, the suffering of others. Don't miss it. And the highest is the highest happiness that the Buddha said, if you aim for the highest happiness, all the other ones will follow. And that is the happiness of liberation. And it's not just something that will happen, you know, 10 lifetimes from now. In every moment, in every moment that there's not greed, hatred, or delusion, in every moment where this moment is enough, just as it is, is a moment of freedom. As the Buddha says, if it were not possible to free the mind of greed, hatred, and delusion, I would not tell you to do so. And it's possible for all of us, and it's possible right in this moment. So, I'll just condense this now and end with something a little bit unusual. I want to make the point that well-being and happiness is your true natural state. As I said a few nights ago, when you're not stressed or confused, that's who you are. And identifying your true nature, seeing it, truly is what we're about. Not to miss all the other wholesome states along the way. Your goodness, your intention, your sincerity, moments of gratitude, moments of integrity, moments of real caring and, and love, moments of peace. It's right here. As Rumi says, Keep knocking and the joy inside will eventually open a window and look outside to see who's there. It's right here. And uh, I'm going to do something a little bit different. This is a little stretch. Go just a few moments more. Um, because uh, I was uh, in the yurt at uh, tea time and was coaxed into saying, okay, well, that fits for the talk. So I want to share with you a song that uh, I wrote many years ago that's really encapsulating this whole talk. So let's see, if you could just bring me the... Oh, oh, it's got a lot of... And on the back, no, there's two. But it's our little secret. <laughs> Guy and Carol and Sally don't have to know. <laughs> 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 
they tell the truth. When people aren't there and you want someone to care and there's nothing really good that you can find just be patient let it flow cause in the end you'll know that up or down it's all in your mind you can grumble and complain and think of all your pain until you feel that life is just a bind but you won't be really free until you let it be cause good or bad the trip is in your mind we've got colors for our eyes and music for our ears and lessons we keep learning all the time and as hearts can be touched there's so very much to wake up to every minute of our lives if you're gray and feeling down and can't seem to come around feel your whole life is just one big boring grind it'll stay there that's for sure and you'll never find a cure until you see that it's all in your mind your whole life is up to you do with it what you want to you just have to seek and you will find that everything's within your grasp be here now not in your past and make it happy cause it's all in your mind make it happy cause it's all in your mind okay all right that's no, 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 no. That's enough. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no, okay, so let's just uh, take a moment, <laughs> if we can. And just when I say make it happy, I'm not saying put on a, a smiley smile, cheery face. I'm saying go for real happiness. Go for the wholesomeness that is spoken about. Go for a happiness that's not dependent on conditions, but is just dependent on the wholesome heart, the wholesome mind that sees where real happiness lies. So we'll just take a moment. If you're feeling at all any 
inkling of well-being. Don't miss it. Be here for it. it's raining out and uh, come back for one last sitting one last Dana Falls poem thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate